Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. The Happy Half Hour is a fun food and drink podcast brought to you by the editors of San Diego Magazine and food critic Troy Johnson. Learn about San Diego's food scene with news about restaurant openings and closings and discussions about what's happening in the culinary world. Get to know a local chef, restaurateur, or farmer each week and find your perfect affordable date night with the regular segment, Two People, 50 Bucks. Subscribe to Happy Half Hour wherever you listen to podcasts or visit sdmag.com slash happy. on the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo, the Yuletide edition of the Voice of San Diego podcast. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at the Voice of San Diego. I'm joined, as always, by Andrew Keats. What's up? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. Happy Holidays. Mm-hmm. Happy Hanukkah and Managing Editor Sarah Libby. Hello. How are you? Great. Merry Christmas. Yes, we have a great show for you this week, but it is that time of year. Bells will be ringing. The glad, glad news. Choirs will be singing. Christmas carols by Candlelight. Do you know that's a really sad song? I think all of them are pretty sad. Oh, what a Christmas to have the blues. Bon Jovi sang that at one point. It's good stuff. People will be rushing to make their year-end contributions to their nonprofits of choice as well. And if you're looking for a great cause where you can give a donation, or if you just like this show, me and Sarah, and appreciate what we do, Sarah and I, mm-hmm. now the two is of us. the time to do it. You can join the campaign at vosd.org slash give. And when you do donate there, we get those notes. Put a little note that says, why do you give? And a lot of people say funny things or say very nice things about it. It's a... It's like a constant drip of dopamine in our little institutional vein. And uh, shout out especially to people like Christopher Karandang, Karandang, uh, who said this. He said, I love the podcast and believe VOSD is one of the greatest forces for good in San Diego. Right on. Wow. Thanks, Christopher. Ernest. Yes. (laughs) Very nice. Shout out to you. So, uh, please, we got a lot of money. We got to still pull, pull in before the end of the year. We get like a third of our revenue over these last few weeks of the year. And so it makes for some interesting days. All right. We have a, a great show. Everyone knows the San Diego mayor's race is Yimby versus NIMBY. Andy here, though, wondered if maybe it just wasn't. And we'll go through some of the selections of this year's Voices of the Year. Actually, it was kind of an uncontroversial year. Nobody really gave us... Crap about any of the choices we had, right? Well, if only that were the case. <laughs> I think maybe relatively doing some work in there, but I, of course, heard from people. Yes. All right, we'll talk about that. But first, there was a really interesting development in land use politics this week. The Democratic Party seems to have endorsed the kind of rural development that environmentalists and others have called sprawl for some time, but they also didn't. Let's get into that for a second. Okay, this week, Kayla Jimenez 
broke down the difference between measure A and measure B. Okay, measure A. This is the one that's formerly known as SOS. Uh, this basically says that if you want to build homes in unincorporated areas, so it's areas outside the cities of the San Diego County region, then you, if you want to build more than, what, six homes, more than what's planned for those areas, then you have to get a vote of the entire people of San Diego. It has to go to the vote. So basically it would shut down development of those type of projects unless they have a tremendous amount of money to make that case to the entire county. Yeah. And And even then. The recent history of of those public votes for big projects like that has not been especially promising. Has one passed yet? Uh, what do you call uh, SDSU West? Okay, right, sure, right. fine, but, yeah. But if that's a university, it's a complicating example. Yeah, exactly. And then there's measure B. That's the one about one of these specific type of projects. So this was a, a development plan along the I-15 there, nestled up in Escondido, San Marcos area along the I-15, and it, it was approved by the Board of Supervisors, so it was a development outside of the plan and zoning for the unincorporated area. The supervisors approved it. This is the first county ordinance ever taken to a referendum. And uh, this was now wow, thrown. really? To, yeah, now thrown to a referendum. Newland Sierra is the development's name. That's Measure B. So if you support Measure A, you want to shut down all of these uh, – unincorporated developments yeah. or you want them, them to all hard. go to a public vote. Yeah. And if you support measure B, you want New and Sierra to pass, right? I don't know how the yes, no on that works. Yeah, I out. think so. Yeah. So we've been talking for months, years about uh, the shifting dynamics of city politics, regional part politics, the Republican parties kind of descending Democrats and independents, well, Democrats kind of holding steady, independents ascending. Well, in registration, I I think I would say in uh, electoral representation, there's no question that Democrats are ascending. Absolutely. And so we've been wondering, when would some of these traditional Republican interests start to like pick sides in the Democratic Party? Right. And I feel like we've talked about this a lot on this here show. This is... I wish we had a an index of the ones we've talked about it. I could send you to those to, to, to catch up on the discussion. Right. But, but this week felt like a watershed moment, right? The Democratic Party voted to oppose Measure A. This is to oppose this restriction on sprawl growth that's supported by a lot of the progressive uh, environmentalists. Yes, exactly. Which has previously always been a, a major a component of the Democratic coalition, right? Along with labor, uh, along with the LGBT community, but you know, th- there's been where the pro-business groups have cloistered around on the right. That's kind of been the group of people that that helped the Democrats get elected. And not only did they they oppose it, like Nathan Fletcher opposed it in this studio, but he said. Look, you know, I just I agree with what it wants to do, yeah. but I just think that supervisors should enforce that. It's it's up to supervisors shouldn't go to the ballot. Makes sense. But given that he's the county supervisor. Right. He wants the power. Sure. Yes, but it was always a, a procedural criticism right. rather than a substantive one, right? But Will Rodriguez Kennedy 
And you got to say this about Will Rodriguez Kennedy. He's the chairman of the Democratic Party. He's not doing anything very half at all. Right. He's going the whole way. Yes. And he went the whole way on this. He said, quote, Measure A has bad public policy that would prevent badly needed affordable housing from being built and contribute to racial and economic segregation. It would force more San Diegans to move to Riverside or Tijuana to find housing and cause more vulnerable people to end up homeless. So get this, read this part again. Would prevent badly needed affordable housing from being built. So he's calling this kind of development badly needed. Badly needed affordable housing. That's fascinating. And whereas some of that is sounds very much like the case that the Building Industry Association may make for this measure, he zeroes in on something that is very consistent with Democratic Party values, which is contribute to racial and ec- economic segregation. It's this this invocation of these traditional Democratic values. Yeah, so we're seeing like kind of this clash between an environmentalist wing of the party that's saying you can have growth, but it needs to be within urban areas and we need to protect these uh, unincorporated open space areas. And we need to do that also to limit how many people are taking car trips because car trips are the leading contributor to climate affecting gases, right? Yeah, I mean, to the extent that there has been a pro-development, pro-housing movement on the left up until this point, it has been, we need to make type, make room for development. We need to aggressively support development. We need to build a permission structure for, for elected officials to say yes to housing and to not view housing as a bad thing. But it should be in the dense urban areas that already exist and near transit options, not over here. There, It had always been a clear uh, yes, but version of events. And this is sort of an open-ended yes. Plus it's, but their entire like focus on climate plans and stuff have been about changing transportation patterns. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that they keep people from making these longer trips, right? Right. So- Really interesting development. The um, we haven't seen it like break out into a fight yet. I, I, there were some of the supporters, obviously, of the measure A, or mad at the party for making this decision. But you know, we'll see if like the climate action campaign, some of those folks start to get into it because this could be a really interesting rupture on the left. Yes, it could. Hmm. I, I don't know. It do, it it felt it feels like a change, right? I like I just don't think. I mean. When Lilac Hills was on the ballot in 2016, you saw um, Chula Vista Mayor Mary Salas become a very high-profile pitch person on behalf of that plan. So it's not as though there has never been any sort of uh, Democratic voice in favor of this type of development. That That's not the case. But the party to weigh in this forcefully does feel new. Mm. All right. So just to repeat, Measure A would be the one that would stop this type of growth because it would make it so hard to do. Measure B, if you support it, would authorize Newland Sierra, the development along I-15 there, and uh, would not authorize it if it was opposed. Again, the first thing ever thrown to a referendum. The Democratic Party, for whatever reason, opposed that B. They So they said you should have these developments because of segregation and, and racial equity and all these things, but then they oppose the one that's on the ballot as well. 
So yeah. I don't know what they're talking, what's going on. I'm going to have to understand that. But that's how that the, works. The only thing I can think of, because it is really hard to square those two things. The only thing I can think of is that actual voting members of the Central Committee either left or arrived over the course of a long meeting. And so the voting composition changed. Or something weirder and more interesting or happened. Or something weirder. And more that that yeah. made it so that they didn't want to support it. I, I don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, there's more to be done there. But this leads us to a different land use and housing discussion. Andy's profile this week about the two top mayoral candidates, Barbara Bree and Todd Gloria. There's other candidates, of course. But these two have really defined the narrative of the race about housing and their particular place in that. Ever since Barbara Bree sent out an email, blast email, she's been doing a lot of these emails, a very core part of her campaign. And the email warned ominously that they were coming for our homes and called uh, the Yimbies, the Yes in My Backyard movement, Wall Street in My Backyard. Uh, so since then, the marriage race has been kind of defined by Bree and Gloria staking out positions on that. And so supposedly Gloria's the Yimby, let's build, Bree's the NIMBY, protect neighborhoods, pick sides, there you go. But you've been nagged for a while by suspicion that that wasn't true. And you pulled together a lot, you actually decided to call people and look at things and records and who's donating. Go to the tape. Go to the tape, follow the money. <laughs> and you Love did it that. when people follow the money. Yeah, I mean, it's a key. People, <laughs> this, journalists, more journalists should follow the money. You should tell journalists to follow the money. What you should do if you're listening helpful. to this is send your local journalist a note that, to follow the money. Just that. The next time there's a story. No period, yeah. just say follow the money. Yeah. And then expect that to be received as a very impressive point of wisdom. <laughs> All right. You followed the money. <laughs> but I actually did in this case. <laughs> uh, all right. Now What's... I feel like we're dunking on my story at this point. <laughs> what is the actual truth about Barbara Bree? Does she oppose development and protect neighborhoods completely? Well, I, I think that is the right first question because that was the part that always struck me as so odd is that since Bree emerged as a local politician, I really never thought of her that way. Yeah. particularly um and you know she, i mean to the extent that there's some overlap between that sentiment and uh short-term vacation rentals sure because she had been quite outspoken on short-term vacation rentals since she emerged on the scene but on housing and development she just never quite struck me as the type of candidate who felt the way and voted the way that would be consistent with what these emails had consistently said. And so your findings were that developers do support her. A lot of them. A She's, lot of the biggest, most well-known, most prolific developers in town are supporting the ostensibly anti-development candidate. Her own family? Her ex-husband, her current husband, her daughter, her, are all developers. Yeah. Or and were developers. Her approach on policies Pretty much all of the biggest major decisions she's had to face about whether to allow development in certain areas, she's been on board with. Yeah, consistently when there has been a proposal that increased the development potential in the city of San Diego in any substantial way, while she's been on the city council, her vote has been, yes, do that thing. In Mission Valley, in Midway, on Marina Boulevard, she voted yes on all of those things that 
increased development potential by thousands and thousands of housing, houses each of those times. Mm-hmm. Can I just make a point about the developers you talk to and when they kind of describe their support for her? Mm-hmm. One thing I think is interesting that's lurking in your story is that a lot of them say like, yeah, no, this is all just rhetoric. We don't believe she actually believes this. And it's just very fascinating to me that a lot of people are publicly on record saying we think our preferred candidate is lying about her fundamental beliefs and we support her despite that. Yeah, I think that what really seems to have clearly happened is that she recognized the electoral possibilities of standing up Wonder Woman style against development in some of the protecting neighborhoods. Yes. And... well, uh, yeah. And decided to dabble in it a bit. Yeah, I think that's right. And and it, and part of it is it. So, so there's been this one of the responses I've seen to the story is 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 very much what you guys are saying that she was a candidate in search of an issue, and this is the one that she landed on. Um, and that that may be the case, but I think it goes back to the two candidates, Barbara Bree and Todd Gloria. If you know, if you rewind the tape three years. You would not. No one would say that these are diametrically opposed candidates, that these are candidates that represent different parts of the Democratic Party or something. Well, and then let's talk about Gloria. So he was endorsed by the Yimby Democrats. He was held up as as the one who would say yes to growth and needed growth. But uh, every time we looked at what he was interested in and had done, it hadn't actually Come out that way. Well, I would not say every time. Okay. Uh, I, sometimes. Okay. So, so, but major community plans where they actually set the zoning were a big part of that. Yeah. So, so, and, and specifically ones in his district. And we asked him about this on the live podcast at PolitiFest. You know, when, when he came into, onto the city council, the city of San Diego started the process of changing the community plans in North Park, Uptown, and Golden Hill. And community plans set the zoning of how many homes you can have every block. Yes. And now to the to a point that was made to me multiple times by people I talked to, when that process started, it was a different time in city politics. Sure. The housing crisis was not the dominant issue and increasing zoning was not the primary reason or increasing development was not exactly the primary reason that communities wanted their community plans updated. Okay, stipulated. But by 2016, when the city adopted those plans and the Uptown plan included no overall development increase from the previous plan, when the Golden Hill plan included no development increase from the community plan, the North Park did make way for 2,000 more units, which was quite modest relative to what was done in Midway and uh, around Sports Arena and Morena Boulevard. Um in those districts that he represented, he voted for them. And at that time, this is not grading in retrospect, at that time, many of his allies, like the climate action plan that you had referenced earlier, they were pushing and saying, these plans aren't doing enough. They're not doing enough to build more housing. They're not doing enough to increase density. And they're not doing enough to combat climate change. This bargain that we're talking about, about stopping growth in the sprawly backcountry rural areas is dependent on this part being accepting of more development and making it easier for people to travel in these smaller areas. Yeah. 
And Gloria, you know, wears the climate action plan that he helped create as such a badge of honor. And that plan is dependent on having much denser neighborhoods where people can meet these ambitious goals of biking and taking transit to work. It's not just dependent. It's mandated. Yes. Right. It's like it has to change. We have to transform how people live and work here. Right. And so now the the president of the UMB Democrats of San Diego County, Maya Rosas, um, is a that group supported supports Todd Gloria. She supports Todd Gloria. She was on the Uptown Planning Group when that measure was passed, and she uh, did not like that plan. She was she was a like a minority of one voice on that board pushing for it to be a very different plan to increase development. And so I called her to ask about uh, about her perspective on Todd at the time, and and she said, "Look, you you need to take account." for how different things were at the time, he stood in the way of something even worse happening. Had that community group been left to its own devices, there would have been a down zone, maybe even a dramatic down zone. So he deserves credit for keeping that from happening. That wow. The fact that there was a, a, a flat zoning is in some ways a victory because of what the alternative was. And that that's fine. I, like, I, I think that's a perfectly viable argument. What I would just say is, it's still not consistent with the narrative of the race that had emerged of him as this wild development everywhere, do anything to say yes to everything, and her being this uh, mirror image of that who wanted to do nothing. Uh, it, and so, like, it, it basically just came down to the the narrative of the race that had emerged was oversimplified to the point of being flat wrong. And And what's weirder to me is that both campaigns seemed willing to indulge the fallacy yes because they had embraced the idea that they had a vision of the race where they could benefit from it and so unlike in a typical situation where your opponent is saying something about you that's not true you you aggressively want to correct the record. No one wanted to correct the record. No one wanted to point out that every time Barbara Bree had been asked to vote for an upzone, she did, or that when Todd Gloria was on the city council, he had an opportunity to increase development in his backyard and didn't. And so the two trains were just moving forward on the tracks, <laughs> and it, everything that was being said was not consistent with their voting records or their support bases. Yeah, I think, but. The narrative keeps getting enforced. You had last week Donna Fry, former city councilwoman, perhaps one of the most ardent. We need to at least respect people who lived here for a long time and want San Diego to feel and be the way it has been for a long time. And, you know, she hates the word NIMBY or whatever, but the idea being like that she's maybe the foremost proponent of protecting neighborhoods. She endorsed Barbara Bree. Yeah, I think there are. I mean, so I think your story is wonderful in correcting the record, but it doesn't demolish the narrative entirely. And I think both Maya Rosas and Donna Fry um, kind of do the opposite in that they help reinforce that narrative. You know, Maya Rosas is a Yimby and supports Ta Gloria. And Donna Fry is somebody who wants to protect single family neighborhoods and supports Barbara Bree. And that reinforces the narrative in a big way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one way of saying it is like, if people believe it's true, then it is. That could, yeah. You know? And so it's like, I think they, 
people who have gravitated to one candidate or another on this issue may in fact have it right. They may have have gravitated to the right candidate to ref- to reflect their views. It just so happens that their voting records are more complicated than that. All right, we are going to take a quick break. On the other side of this, we're going to talk about our voices of the year. It was a fun version of that, a very, very educational version. We'll be right back. My favorite thing about Voice of San Diego is the dedication that we have to our city. Voice of San Diego needs your support because it gives student journalists like me an opportunity to grow in a newsroom with professional journalists just like this. My favorite thing about Voice of San Diego is that we do journalism in a no-holds-bar kind of way. We go out in the community and try to uncover information and when we believe it's wrong and reflects poorly on our society, then we say so in a really straightforward kind of way and we don't tie ourselves up in knots. And I think that kind of journalism is really powerful in its ability to make the community a better place. Voice of San Diego needs your support because we're, we are your eyes and ears um, to what's going on in the city. A lot of times we as residents don't have time to keep up with everything that's going on in our community. So that's what Voice of San Diego does for us and we make sure that uh, our leaders are held accountable. You can support Voice of San Diego right now at vosd.org give. All right. Welcome back. We are back. I'm back. And Sarah are back. Everybody's back. We are going to talk about the voice of the year 2019. We're going to go through some various editions of the voice of the year. No, various inclusions. Sorry, I'm not allowed to say the plural of voice. Uh, And then we will get to the actual voice of the year, the one that seemed to stand out as the person who made the most conversation in San Diego, triggered the most discussion. <clears throat> and it uh, doesn't mean it was the biggest story necessarily. It doesn't mean it was uh, the biggest news or whatever. It, our selection criteria is that somebody did something or said something that caused the most conversation, thus voice. And critically, that had they not done that, we would not have had that conversation. Right. And it is a total honor. (laughs) And people should be completely honored when they get this. Right, Sarah? Yes. So (laughs) every year I really enjoy putting this together and I like voting on the voice of the year and I like reading everybody's write-ups. Sarah's thing. Sarah's thing. Yeah, it's my thing. And then it comes out and I want to die and (laughs) never do it again because no matter how many times we explain it, it is only treated as an honor of that person and an endorsement of their views and policies and a validation of everything they've been saying, no matter what it was. Well, now wait, there's a couple people who do. I think most people. The first year we did it, it it was Bob Filner after he had been forced to resign for (laughs) sexual harassment. Yeah. No, it was, uh, 
it, it's a good product. I love it. This year's especially. I think it was the best. Yeah, yeah the write-ups was... are great. People should actually read them. All right. So <laughs> I don't get the feeling many people do. <laughs> I feel like no one does. <laughs> I don't think anyone. That's does. not true. A lot of people do. Why are you guys pooping on it? <laughs> it's good just, stuff. Just, I, I get just, a lot of tweets and emails. <laughs> Doesn't seem seems like, like no would. one's read it. <laughs> you All right. should read it though. <laughs> I hate it when you guys do this. It's not a funny joke. It's kind of funny. <laughs> I don't. I mean, look here. I'm I'm here to tell you. Apart from voices of the year, stop oh calling it voices. Uh, aside from voice of the year, there's a lot of people reacting to things that they didn't read. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, that's a trait of social media. But all right, let's. I once worked at a place where we would routinely get more retweets on stories than we got clicks clicks for the stories. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's do this. We'll break it up, uh, go around. Each person pick one of theirs that they wrote up or one that they want to highlight. And we'll do two rounds, maybe. Is that all right? Sure. And start with Sarah. All right, so I wrote up Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez. Did she do anything this year? Yeah, no, she was like, did some talking and whatnot. (laughs) Um, Still going today, too. I think it's fair to say that she ultimately was the runner-up um, when we were considering who to name the main voice of the year. And she's somebody who I think we set a really high bar for because she's very outspoken on lots of really provocative issues. She's in the news all the time. And that's, you know, we're not naming the biggest newsmaker per se. And yet, even given all of that, she absolutely was starting really big conversations this year. Um, The two biggest of which were, you know, the debate over whether to overhaul vaccine mandates and especially this law that um, the governor ultimately signed, AB5, which, you know, just changes how we imagine work in California. um, And it limits when you can use independent contractors and really seems like a prescient choice this week, given that it's the only thing that's been in the news statewide other than, you know, impeachment or whatever. Yeah, good thing we decided to honor her this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the AB5, let's talk about the blew up. She's been on the defense on Twitter all week long because news broke that SB Nation, the, the company run by Vox, the media uh, you know, vertical run by Vox Media. Sports vertical by Vox Media. They have a ton of contributors, about 200 freelance contributors in California who get small stipends and such to do their various blogs on teams. You know, there was one in San Diego called Gas Lamp Ball, right? Mm-hmm. Bolts uh, from the Blue Bolts was from also the, from that. Yeah, yeah, so those things, small stipends, people get to maintain those blogs. Uh, I don't know how exactly they get paid. Usually it's a simple contract. Not a lot. They're not employees of Vox, though. Mm-hmm. Vox announced this week that they were all being cut off and a, small, a much smaller number of full-time and part-time workers would be hired. Uh, so basically, the literal intent of AB5 was being carried out. So AB5 was the law that followed the Dynamex decision. <clears throat> Dynamex said, interpreted current law about independent contractors and said, if you are going to be classified as if an if a person's going to be classified as an independent contractor, they have to satisfy three major tests. The one of those three that was big was the B of the ABC, which said that if they do 
work that that business usually does, then they should be employees. So if you're a baker at a bakery or a journalist at a newspaper, you're doing the work that that business does. You should be an employee. But if you are an accountant of a bakery, that's fine. Right. You clean the place. You you fix their telephones. All that stuff. So um, the she that took that decision that became law. Like we were going to have to stop having freelance contributors. Yes. She took that and created a law to try to create exemptions and other things out of that to make it law that maybe was better suited for the state. Uh, in that process, we raised alarms right away because we we're like, I started as a freelancer. You do freelance, Sarah. Like it was, you know, it was kind of scary that that opportunity would never be there. She ended up building into that law that if you wanted to be a freelance journalist, you could do 35 submissions for one place. Past that point, you would have to be an employee. Now, so after the SB Nation Vox News, though, blew up this week, and she has been arguing with people nonstop on Twitter. Yes. So a lot of people, you know, lost their gigs writing for SB Nation and were understandably upset about that. Um, a lot of people have been outraged, although it's kind of ironic given that SB Nation has been under fire for years for exploiting workers, and they've also been sued for you know, one person said that they worked 40 to 50 hours a week and got paid $125 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are things that we're typically outraged by. And now we're outraged that they don't get that opportunity to yeah. be exploited. So that's strange. And um, then there was the news, uh, Randy Dotinga, who people who followed Voice know very well. He helps lead a uh, group of freelancers, the Association of Freelance Journalists. I forget. Sorry. That's not his name. <laughs> but I couldn't tell you what its name yeah. is. So Journalistic Society of News. ASJA is what it is, okay. right? Yeah. And so uh, they have joined forces with the Pacific Legal Foundation to sue the state for this law. And their claim is that uh, basically the um, this is a violation of free speech, that if you overly regulate journalists and their ability to have these gigs, you're hampering their free speech. So their claim is a little different than another lawsuit um, against AB5 by truckers. Mm -hmm. Um, So they claim that it violates the First Amendment and also that it violates the 14th Amendment specifically by singling out journalists and saying you treat journalists differently than you treat everybody else. Therefore, they're not getting equal protection under the law. So the effort to build an exemption for journalists is now being held against the state. Fascinating. So all that is happening this week. Yes, they're so, also casually a Republican uh, proposed doing a constitutional amendment to overturn AB5 um, and the Dynamex decision. I'm not sure how he would accomplish that, but wow. he announced that too. Yeah, the the other thing this obviously provoked is Uber and Lyft and several of the other sort of gig economy um, industrialists have put together a proposed ballot measure that would go on the November ballot that would create a whole new system for them that would supersede AB5. So, wow, yeah, talk about a conversation that yeah. we started. I feel like it's Validating. pretty clear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she she did start a conversation. Yeah. Now today, did you see, she tweeted that she think, well, she asked, hey, what would you guys think if I just, if we tried to make journalists clearly businesses and thus the under the other exemption of the law, they're just doing business with other businesses, therefore aren't restricted. 
And she, of course, was... Got a very sober reaction where people were very willing to yeah, it, spirited back and forth. No, she no. got nuked again. It was crazy. So fascinating to watch. All right, Andy, who's yours? So I, I wrote one on uh, this guy, probably heard of him. I think we talked about him a little bit on this podcast. His name's Hassan Akrata. So this was the voice of the year. Right. Um, so this is the highest honor that uh-huh. we bestow on people. <laughs> um, so we just love to honor people <laughs> and validate their <laughs> applaud, contributions. Applaud, really. applaud them, really. Yeah. 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 That's our, our, it's in our mission statement. Do people do know you're joking? I think I think we, we've established that, right? I don't know. I don't, they're not going to know. Probably no not. one will ever know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, look, I, I thought... The way I framed it was, I, I think Hassan Akrata is responsible for the single, the individual that is most singularly responsible for initiating a conversation is Hassan Akrata, I think. Because, think about it this way, that guy just started his job at Sandag a year ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, it feels like we've been through like five versions of backlash to the backlash yeah, around Hassan Akrata. Yeah, feels like we've been doing this for years. There's all kinds of discussion about the five big moves, his transportation plan. But I think the biggest point that you made in your piece that really highlights how much he changed is that for years, Sandag was a unanimous, one voice kind of quiet agency. Nobody really thought about it unless you were directly involved in what it was doing. And every vote was completely unanimous. Yeah. If there was any sort of uh, dissent that was worked out behind the scenes. And by the time it came forward, it had been massaged to the point that everyone could support it. As though the the community was unified on what it wanted to do about transportation, which it's clearly not. We clearly have very different views between people downtown Chula Vista and Escondido about how we should be moving people around this region. Yeah. And so the, 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 <clears throat> the unanimity, which, you know, I think people who defended Sandag previously thought of as a strength, as an indication of how well it was, uh, it, as, as how well its executive was delivering on its, its responsibilities. It was, it actually deprived us of an important conversation. We mm-hmm. did not have the actual debate where we openly said that thing you want, I don't want to pay for. That thing that you want, I think, is bad. That that that's the sort of back and forth between highways, transit, how we should spend our money, how we should grow, where we should grow. Uh, just it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And uh, it's it. However, that conversation sorts out. It is good that that is over. Yeah, I think to the extent you know, San Diego is a part of. The United States. And so on any mm-hmm. given day, Donald Trump is in the news and the border is in the news and all these big things, whatever Gavin Newsom's doing. But to the extent that there has been a solely local conversation about what San Diego should look like, whether it's bike lanes or transit to the airport or just transit versus highways in general, like that has been the biggest debate of the year. And it's all because of him. Yeah. And even even if he fails, if if he releases five big moves at the beginning of next year and it is summarily dismissed by the board and it's determined that that was a waste of time and money and they fire him, I'm not suggesting those things are happening, but if that were to occur, it still would have been a valuable exercise to air the fact that people have differences of opinion here. Yeah. Yeah. Good one. All right. Uh, I did 
I did Nathan Fletcher, and I'm just going to quickly do that. Like, he changed the conversation at the county. Like, no question. It's just a different place. He had help to do that. But the one I wanted to highlight this time in this round was uh, the three Republicans who left the Republican Party, Brian Mainshine, Mark Kersey, and Summer Steffen. So I, I pulled up the numbers for this. So President Trump lost San Diego County in 2016, 56 to 36. And then he lost in the city of San Diego. He only got 28% of the vote. And it probably hasn't grown since then. The, Doesn't seem to have. The opposition to the president in this in this corner of the country is pretty fierce. And so it's caused this really weird situation to develop where uh, Republicans are in a weird position where they, they, they see that. And in the last election, 2018, city councilwoman Lori Zaff lost by 16 points. She wasn't facing any major scandal. scandal. Yeah. She wasn't uh, a complete mess. Her previous re-election, she won in June. Yeah, she, she won outright in the primary. She and and yet by tying her to Trump and her inability to sort of handle that, she lost by 16 points. The fierce wave of opposition to Trump combined with whatever they were able to tie her to just overwhelmed her. She left the party after the race. Um and yet on the other side, the party, the Republican party, Trump is still quite popular among members. And so these Republicans are really in a bizarre situation where they have to balance that. They either have to create an identity that that can somehow bridge the two sides or they have to just not talk about it and somehow be accepted by both sides. And that seems to be the path that a lot of them are going on, like mild opposition to the president, but there are local concerns. You know, Scott Sherman, when I asked him, he's running for mayor now. He's a Republican. I asked him if he supports the president. He refused to say. Like, he just, it's like, I'm not going to talk about it. Like, can you imagine, like, like a Democrat saying, I, I, I refuse to say I support Barack Obama and around here? I mean, it's just like a, a really interesting dynamic. And so for some of them, it just got to be too much. We saw in the first part of the year, Brian Mainstein left. He became a Democrat with a fierce line of, very liberal policies, by the way, that he said he supported principles. And then Mark Kersey left. He's a San Diego city councilman, uh, became the only independent on the city council. And he didn't really say much. He's just like, this is just not for me anymore. But this is the big one. Summer Stefan, the district attorney, you know, there's only a couple of seats elected countywide like hers is. Uh, and the other thing, she left the party but she's the one that's probably most likely to run for re-election as an independent or probably not a Democrat. I don't think she's going to switch all the way over. I mean, her whole reasoning was that she thought having a party label affixed to that office meant some people thought they wouldn't have access to justice. And right. so it would be hard to see her square that with changing it, although plenty I, of people have Right, I am, I am old it. enough to remember Nathan Fletcher making similar points about being independent. Today I am done with party politics. Yeah, exactly. Right. But but yeah, no, I agree. And so so she will be a really interesting test uh, as a person running in that top you know tier race uh, as an independent. Now, there, it's very hard to throw an incumbent out. You know, she'll have a lot of momentum. Uh, will the Republican Party challenge her? I don't 
know, maybe Oof. somebody will come up. And so, but that's, it seems like one of the only, or one of the major cases around the state of a, of a person who left the party staking out a, an independent path to reelection. Yeah. So I'll do a little preview here. I, I, um, working on a, a year end story. We, yeah. A, a behind the scenes of local journalism, uh, that week behind between Christmas and New Year's, a lot of people take vacations. We get a lot of stories in the can. Not really supposed to say all this out loud, yeah. but yeah, the, sure. you're saying the, the quiet part out loud. <laughs> they have Twitter. Yeah, all right. They can. Well, you shouldn't say it there either. <laughs> Everybody knows that that's how it works. Uh, so I'm working on a story on the future of the GOP here. Mm-hmm. Looking forward after all this, and um, one of the people I talked to was Mike Madrid, who's a yeah. uh, statewide GOP consultant. And San Diego, so San Diego Republicans have always sort of for a long time now punched above their weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, registration go, moving away from them is not necessarily new, but they had been able to succeed electorally in spite of that. And the bottom falling out on that is not just something that carries ramifications for the city council, the mayor's office, district attorney's office. It ends the path to victory for Republicans statewide. The statewide path to victory, as Mike Madrid explained it to me, was called the fishhook strategy, which was basically you needed to win in Orange County and San Diego, and those populous counties could give you the vote totals to uh, counteract- Through the valley. To, yeah, to counteract uh, the, what Democrats were going to be able to do in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And that turned the Central Valley- and the Inland Empire into the battleground. And if you win there, then you just won the race. That Orange County and San Diego's job was to neutralize the vote run-up that Democrats could do in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Now that the Republicans have lost San Diego County, it's over. There is no path to victory statewide until there's some sort of major uh, Republican reshuffling. I believe they've also lost Orange County as well. And which yes, which is, is true as well. Continues to be mind blowing. Yeah. So I think they see a lot of hope in, you know, maybe some of the disruptions of the power industry, maybe some of the taxation uh, revolts, you know. Literally that, anything Lorena Gonzalez does. Yeah. Maybe they can capitalize <laughs> on this anger about stuff that she's doing. But th- the path forward is so unclear right now. Well, and I think the thing that they, they struggle with is like what's the connective tissue between those things? Right. Where is where is the the uh the ideological position that doesn't need to be explained that here's where Republicans are, here's where Democrats Especially are. as we talked about earlier in this show, if traditionally supportive groups of the right start to pick a democratic side uh, right. and start to invest their efforts in picking a democrat because uh, that further erodes the need for that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who want to make sure there's an alternative, a right of center alternative in these races. And the future of the Republican Party is just so unclear right now. All right. You can do you want to do one more. All right. So I also wrote about Assemblywoman Shirley Weber. Mm-hmm. And so the debate over the bill that changes the standards for police use of deadly force um it's been a while ago since that kind of climax, so it might be a little easy to forget what a big deal it was. But something that really struck me, I went back and watched the assembly floor debate over um, the bill. 
And by the time it had gotten to the assembly floor, it was already a done deal. The police had dropped their opposition to it, which, again, was a really, really big deal that she helped orchestrate. And one after the other, all of these Republicans and Democrats, but it was striking to see this from all of the Republicans, didn't just talk about, you know, police and what an important job they have. They all talked about Shirley Weber herself. And they said, I was a no on this bill. I love police. You know, I think it's my duty to protect them and to help them do their jobs. But she listened to my concerns and she took me seriously and she got to a place where I could say yes. And I just can't remember a time where I've seen, you know, especially in today's climate, just a line of white Republican men just get on the floor and publicly praise a Democrat for doing a really big, contentious, thorny thing. I mean, like they certainly wouldn't say a lot of nice things about Lorena Gonzalez, no matter what the issue was. And so it was just really striking. I don't think any politician in the state could have pulled this off. Well, that was our Voice of the Year project. You should check it out. Uh, There's a lot of others we included. Uh, Andy wrote another one, too, right? Andy wrote a lot. I wrote a lot of them. Good job. Thank you. No problem. Um, And uh, I want to say again, all of this work, all of the writing, all of the podcast, everything is dependent on support from you. If you enjoy any of this, please go to voiceofsandiego.org slash donate. Go to vosd.org slash give that's a shorter version and when you do that you can leave us a note a shout out to nathan wallman who wrote journalism is truth insurance andrew glacebrook wrote i appreciate your honest reporting and willingness to tackle matters important to san diego exclamation point so uh please join nathan andrew christopher everybody who's supported so far we need you to come in this week This is the last week of the year, and a lot of things are dependent on that coming out well. So thanks to all who have donated so far. Donate, leave us a note, vosd.org slash give. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. It's the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in downtown San Diego. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO, editor-in-chief. Andrew Keats is assistant editor. Sarah Libby's managing editor. And the show and a lot of things on our site are produced by Nate John, Megan Wood, and Adriana Heldes. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>